Hey, welcome, Alan. Welcome, Two Voice Mark. Devs. Two Voice Devs. How's it going? <laughs> it's a crazy week. It's, it's election week. It's the final uh, ramp up to uh, the U.S. Uh, presidential and everything else election, right? Um, yeah. No, big, big stuff. It's an important week. You know, we used to talk about election day, and now it's election week. And that's, I like it. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think there's uh, you know still some uh, ramp up to the the, uh, the final election day, but then it's going to probably take some some time to get the final results in. So just a little bit of patience on that side of things. Um, no. I, I voted by mail. Um, have you voted yet, Alan? I have not voted yet. Uh, voting in New York State just opened, but probably by the time this airs, I will have voted. Well, good. So. so um, you know, I'm not going to you know, say one way or another. You, you can probably search my Twitter and figure out where where I'm leaning on my vote. But that doesn't really matter other than the fact that uh, I encourage you to get out and vote. Um, I agree. So I, I stand up for your right to vote for whoever you choose. You know, I certainly have preferences. But most important, I think, is that we all get out and we make sure we express ourselves using the democratic process, using using the tools that we have. Need to pick our representatives, uh, not just president, but all the way down um, to you know in, into Congress and into your state and local leaders as well. Yep, we'll find out. Uh, <clears throat> I guess soon enough how this all turns out. <laughs> Hopefully, by uh, by the time our our next show airs, we'll at least have an idea what's going on. We'll see. We'll, we'll see. Let's hope, that, let's hope that's the case. <laughs> you know, one one of the fun things to keep in mind is you know we talk about knowing the, who the winner is on election night. And yet it's only been within the past few decades that that was really what we were able to do. You know, for, yeah. for most of our country's history, it took months to know who actually won the elections. Yeah, no, you're right. And uh, I, I'm encouraged by this election that there are so many more people that are, are participating. There's, uh, in the past, there's been huge chunks of the uh, voting population that have chosen not to vote at all. And so the fact that we have so much going on with early voting, I'm encouraged. I'm glad that uh, people are getting involved. I agree. I'm very encouraged. I'd like to see people out and participating. Yeah. So uh, what should we talk about today? Well, I was thinking last time that we talked, we, were, we talked about our, um, our development environment. And we both kind of at the beginning of that hinted that the environment that we use today is kind of built on our recent developer history, you know, what, what we've been yeah. doing the past decade or so. Um, but I know both of us have been developing for even longer than that. So I thought it would be fun to kind of talk about, you know, how did we get started with computers? <laughs> and how did that bring us to where we are now? Because, you know, one, one of the neat things about this, uh, this industry in general is that everyone comes in with with different backgrounds with different True. different paths into the industry um but it all shapes us it shapes where we you know how we got here and what we do now that we're here and i think that's important that kind of diversity is really what's great about our industry i think yeah and and the fact that your path is different than my path is different from somebody else's is is awesome i think it is awesome. uh, and, you know, and it means that, you know, when, when we cross paths, we've got these different experiences that we can bring to the table and share and exchange and create something even greater coming out of it. 
Yeah, no, I agree. Um, I don't know. Do you want to share a little bit about your history? Sure. I, so, so I've been, I've now been doing, working with computers for three quarters of my life at this point, I, I think I realized. Um, and the, the first computer I owned was a Commodore PET. In fact, it is, I can, I can show it to you behind me now. It is that exact oh. Commodore PET. Hey. Um, that I used decades ago now. And, you know, I think at the time I saw it in terms of, you know, little fun things that I could do. Um, and pretty quickly I had people starting to say to me, you know, things like, well, you know, you, you've got a word processor there. Why don't you type your papers? Um, and that kind of dawned on me that, you know, there's, there's practical elements to this. It's not just fun and games. It's, you know, I can write my papers on it and then have to convince my teachers that, yes, I was the one writing the paper. The computer wasn't writing the paper. Um, so it was, you know, trying to help people understand the technology and where the, the level of technology was. Um, where did you get your start? Um, so my first computer I received probably about the age of 15, um, early 1980s, uh, Texas Instruments 99 4A computer. So our family didn't fun. have, yeah, our family didn't have a lot of money. And so the fact that it was, um, I think it was like a $99 Christmas special um, was something that, uh, that, that finally fed our family's budget. And I'm so glad that it did because um, I, you know, got the manual out and started learning how to program basic and, and stayed up all that, you know, that day and all the next night, just going through typing things in. Um, and interestingly for the next few years, uh, I did science fair projects and I would always find some project that I could do on the computer. Yep. Um, so yep. I did like a wildcat well drilling, drilling simula uh, simulation. I, um, Texas Instruments had this, something called Extended Basic, which added sprites and sounds and and additional things. Um, so I uh, I did a like I said a Wildcat Well simulation. I did a um, missile guidance system actually mm. um, using some uh, some math that was able to you know project on the screen some uh, a trajectory of a missile. But I was also able to work with uh, a neighbor next door um, who uh, he was a, um, an engineer, electrical engineer, and uh, actually hooked up a, a remote controlled um, you know, transmitter for, for a model airplane with a model rocket that was like a, um, I think it was like a Phoenix uh, uh, rocket, but uh, turned that into a missile with fins that moved, and then you could actually control with a joystick the uh, trajectory on the screen. Um, so, I, actually, that was that, a, that was a that was a big science fair uh, favorite. No, that, I can see that one. No, we did. I did the same thing. Was use it for a number of years as part of different science fair projects and other projects. You know, English school, pro, you know, school projects in English. For um, I think one of the the fun thing, one of the fun science fair projects I did. Uh, with a partner of mine, a good friend of mine, was uh, pair up the Commodore PET with a um, a set of switches and relays so that you could control, you know, so you could use the switches and relays to control what was going on on the system. And it involved, you know, he was doing the hardware part and I was doing the software part. And again, that's a pattern that I think I see throughout the rest of my career. 
-hmm. was, you know, I was partnering with people who were doing new hardware stuff and I was trying to figure out the software side of the same thing. You know, so, so it, was, it, it was the maker community before maker became long more before, mainstream. Oh yeah. Actually one of, one of the fun things about the Commodore PET is that it had a number of these extra interfaces, which were standard and well publicized amongst the science and engineering communities. So it had lots of people doing these weird sorts of things that could be plugged in and therefore lots of documentation that was floating around about it. And that actually brings up another, you know, issue that you and I have talked about when it comes to community was one of the great things about the, the Commodore community then was that it was a community. You know, there were what we would call user groups then. Yep. And no, we couldn't get on, you know, there was no internet, at least there was an internet, but not a very public one at that point. But there were mailing lists and newsletters that came out monthly that actually landed in your, your mailbox. Yep. What was going on. Um, so there was this this community that I was thrilled to be a part of. Yeah, no, I, I joined the Texas Instruments, the, uh, the 99ers, they called them. Uh, so uh, yeah, and we went to, I think once a month, there was a, a Saturday, you would meet for a couple of hours and, and demo the things that you were working on. Uh, that was back in with the uh, dial-up modem to bulletin board days, mm -hmm. so. No, and the dial-up modem days and what started getting into my, my venture into what I see as the internet, you know, took place when I was in high school. I helped run a bulletin board system um, out of the school. And that, you know, again, it was what does a community look like? And what does a remote community look like? Where you've got, you know, some people that you see in person and some people that you see less often or never that you're just communicating with online. Uh, and and that was the stuff that I was doing with you know, with Apple IIs and Apple II Pluses and Apple IIes and those were were fun days when we you know got the modem and started reaching out around the world and connecting with yep. others and sharing that information faster. Yeah, and the fun, fun days that uh, you know my other family members got to pick up the other uh, receivers in the house and hear uh, the yes, like oh Mark's on the computer again. <laughs> Many, many times that happened. I remember those days well, yes. <laughs> so um, in, into high school you know, um, is when I actually took my first programming class. I took an AP uh, computer programming class, and it was Pascal. Mm -hmm. um, so I, so I, I learned uh, Pascal then and then uh, started college. And uh, originally, I was going to do electrical and computer engineering. Um, and... Uh, and took another Pascal class because you had to take one at the college. Um, but uh, took two years off. Um, I, I served a, a mission for my church in, in Brazil. And then when I came back, I kind of just rethought through what I wanted to do and you know, kind of put all the majors back up on the board and took a look at it and thought that I really wanted to understand business problems and how to solve business mm -hmm. problems with computers. So I went into management information systems. And and the only required programming class there was COBOL. Uh -huh. And so I, so I learned COBOL and I actually did a summer internship between my junior and senior year up at uh, Safeco Insurance in Seattle, um, programming COBOL and decided that I wanted to do Windows programming instead. I did get a, a job offer that next year, but I decided I wanted to go into Windows programming. I also had taken a uh, C++ class at college. And so that was kind of how uh, 
you know, my college years. What did you do? Um, so, so like, in college? so like you in high school, I took AP computer science and I kind of actually forced the issue a little bit with my district because they weren't, they weren't terribly interested in, there were, were very few formal computing classes. Yeah. But uh, again, the friend who, who assisted me with the electronics um, and I convinced them to, 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 for the, the computer teacher to, tutor us specifically in it and then to let us take the AP class. Um, so I, I, I went into college uh, with that kind of foundation. I had known for years that I wanted to be, to wanted to major in computer science. That was, that was almost no question for me. Um, and in college I did ROTC in the Air Force. So they were very happy to see people doing computer science work. Right. Uh, so I spent uh, all four of my years doing computer science, learning a variety of different programming languages, mostly Pascal, but that's where I was exposed to C. C++ was brand new at the time, so we were just exploring that. Um, a wide range of other languages, including Lisp and Scheme and you know, all sorts of other specialty languages that were going on at the time as well. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, during during my, the, the the break between my junior and senior year, I was uh, in a shadow program for the Air Force. So I went to an Air Force base and was shadowing another officer and seeing what they were doing as part of, you know, in the same career field. And that's where I was exposed to other languages like Ada and Modula 2 and Modula, you know, so and, and other stuff that wasn't, that's well known, but not so well known today. But it kind of exposed me to a lot of, well, here's a lot of different ways to do the same thing. And you don't need to pick one, you need to pick the one that's right for the task. Right. So um, coming, out of, coming out of college, I went into the Air Force and did, um, did computer work for the Air Force. And while I was in there, kind of looking at other hobbies, other side projects to do for fun, I was talking to a friend who was working at Xerox Park at the time. And he said, you should, you should check out this, this mosaic project thing. So I looked at him and I said, oh, hey, this is cool. This, I, can, I can build something with this uh, that I built in high school, a, um, an interactive text-based adventure game thing. Uh, so I built, you know, I, I tried to do it and I said, I, I'm having trouble getting started with this. You know, I, I need, it's not letting me do what I want. He goes, oh, you probably need a server. Go pick up a Linux server. And I'm like, what's Linux? Yeah. So he pointed me at Linux version 0 0.9. <laughs> I, you know, to give you an idea, just, just how long we're talking about here. Um, and I got started with it and set up my first Apache server. And, you know, uh, and got Mosaic working to, and set up my first website from there. Yeah. Wow, that's uh, that's fun. Um, so in college, I took a um, a SQL uh, class. Actually, I was a TA for the database uh, for one of the database uh, professors uh, in the business school, and uh, my, my job was uh, to help him reformat chapters in his uh, SQL programming book and. 
and stuff. And that's that's when I you know got my first exposure to Microsoft SQL Server slash Sybase mm -hmm. SQL Server. Um, and so growing out of college, I ended up taking a job in Chicago um, with Arthur Anderson. They were one of the big tax firms, and I was going to write international tax software for them on what was called a 4GL language. So it was a it was a forms creator that had programming behind the scenes and a SQL database. Uh, it was uh, Gupta SQL Windows was my first uh, program environment. But I, um, right out of the bat, I was uh, you know doing hands-on programming, and I've stayed hands-on ever since. I went from there from my first job to my second job in Chicago because they actually moved to Florida within six months of me graduating from college. I uh, didn't want to go down there, so I took another job. Um, and we were doing Power Builder. Um, and also, uh, that's where I got my first introduction to Visual Basic. Um, so I did Visual Basic, and then uh, it was time to move back west to, uh, you know, I'm from, from Utah, my wife's from Arizona. Um, so we moved to Arizona, and I uh, did some consulting with Visual Basic, and then that led into, um, a little bit of uh, you know web programming before you know .NET came out, and then when .NET came out, I I uh, went ahead and started uh, doing C sharp, and I did more you know either full time job or consulting, kind of half and half depending on. Um, but I worked uh, up into uh, an architecture position where I was doing back end components for um, Microsoft. Uh, uh, web applications, mm -hmm. um, doing a lot of uh, you know, classes and design patterns and, and things. Um, so that's kind of how I got into the whole .NET Microsoft realm, which took me for you know, a long time since .NET you know, began all the way to just a few years ago when I was doing, you know, I was doing Microsoft stuff 100% uh, mm -hmm. of the time. Uh, whether it be mostly web, various incarnations of web or enterprise software, uh, but also some Silverlight and Windows Phone. Ooh, um, those were fun days. Yeah, they? so, uh, and uh, then that led into when I discovered uh, voice and, and um, AWS stuff. So, so what about your career? So in the Air Force, I had a number of interesting positions, and some of which were development positions using Ada and C++. Uh, and at one point, as I was... Um, in the middle of this web stuff, personally, somebody said, hey, does anyone know what this web thing is? The general wants to know. So I got to do, you know, presentations for one and three-star generals about what this web thing was because nobody knew, you know. So I was yeah. getting questions like, well, you know, will this interface with our databases? And I'm like, we could make it interface with the database, but it doesn't. Um, by itself. So, yeah. you know, a lot of helping people just understand the basics. Um, and during that time, I also got involved in computer security, which led me down a whole other path of, you know, investigating security issues and vulnerabilities and how do we, you know, trust the networks and the computers that are on the networks and how much trust do we place in them and how much do we care about firewalls and where should we trust firewalls? And in the middle of this time, uh, Microsoft was launching their new browser and uh, Sun Microsystems was as part of this. You know, there was a lot of 
concern about safety in the browser. And Microsoft had their solution and Sun had their solution. And Sun's solution was this uh, development environment called Java. And the big important thing about Java was that it would run in your browser securely because it wasn't possible to have a number of security exploits, which were incredibly common at the time. Um, and it was Java eliminated those exploits. So everyone was very excited about Java and I started looking into it and I started liking it as a language and doing more and more with it as a language. But, but back then we were mostly thinking of it as a browser language, not a server language. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't until after I got out of the Air Force and went to work for a, a small company in Houston that uh, at the time nobody ever heard of called Enron. Um, oh, Enron. <laughs> I, I, I spent a couple of years at Enron um, that we started thinking about, well, okay, how can we use this language and the safety that we get from the language in the server or on server processes or something? Mm -hmm. um, and after I left Enron, and I left Enron on my own terms, more or less, um, I went to work for the small consulting company that I, I work for now. And there I was mostly doing uh, Java on the back end. And back then it was very early days of Java in the back end. So there weren't all of the same standards that we have today. So all of the, the inversion of control tools that were, were used to today and spring didn't exist then you know when when we discovered yeah. spring it was it was uh pleasant because it was standardizing a lot of things that we were doing on our own in our own way and finding a nice structure to do them in was refreshing in some ways yes I, you know i remember back when there weren't a lot of frameworks and libraries and you just had to code everything yourself and yeah that, that was a <laughs> No, Enron did energy trading, right? Enron did energy trading. And well, they did everything trading, but mostly they were energy traders. So yeah, that was not a computer. I wasn't in the computer industry. Um, I was doing computer work and it was, it was IT work that was supporting higher ups. And it was dealing with databases and exchanging information and extracting information from, uh, from private data feeds. You know, so we would have a constant ticker on what energy prices were mm -hmm. in certain markets, and we needed to do something with that. Well, interestingly, I I had a uh, like a two three year consulting job at uh, APS, which is Arizona Public Service, which is uh, energy you know, <laughs> provider here in Arizona, and uh, the team that I worked for was the the energy trading team. So we would have. Uh, to keep track of uh, different capacity, you know, electric mm -hmm. uh, capacity on different lines from different from you know point A to point B to point C. So having all those different segments in and 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 figuring out which segments have which value and where it goes up and down. And uh, we have uh, you know, lots of reservoirs actually here with different power plants, and we have one nuclear uh, plant uh, here in Arizona, but. Uh, it was, yeah, it was all about trying to find excess capacity so we could sell it off to other places. Oh, so it was all about excess capacity, not balancing capacity to make sure yeah. your lines weren't overloaded and, you know. Yeah, so. Fun stuff, not, those are, yeah. those are challenging times in a lot of ways. A lot of fun, uh, fun database problems and you know, trying to figure out how to do queries that would 
grab uh, particular segments or or you know whole uh, you know, systems of uh, lines all the way from you know from one point to another point. Mm -hmm. A lot of what we were doing at the time was trying to get inf energy information. So while there were a lot of newsletters that were out there that were publishing, you know, here's what the spot average spot price was on the markets yesterday in in oil or in gas or in various other things. Most of these newsletters saw themselves as newsletters. So when we asked for, you know, can we get electronic information of your data, they would do things like send us a PDF every day by email. And we're like, no, we we need the numbers. And they're like, well, access to the data, not the uh, report. Why, right. And they're like, why do you need the numbers? And we're like, because that's what we're basing our, our decisions on. You know, that's right. what we're basing our pricing on. The contracts that we're settling are based on that number right there in your newsletter. And a lot of them didn't realize that that's how valuable their data was. It's all about the data. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, when we told them, you know, we're settling contracts based on that number, they're like, you're doing what? Why would you, why, why are you trusting this number? And we're like, because it's the only number out there. You know, what other choice do we have? Yeah. So it was, it was very surprising to see that, you know, a lot of these companies didn't realize what they had or how valuable their data was or how people were using their data even. Yeah. Like that's, uh, then you go into the whole world of, uh, <clears throat> you know, when they're trying to make more like web services and, and discoverability of web services and, mm -hmm. you know, whole XML um, chunk of, uh, of my career was uh, understanding and being able to parse um, and create XML. Mm -hmm. um, and you were, I'm sure you were playing with things like SOAP and, yep. you know, advertising schemas and parsing the advertising schemas. Yep. Yep, Wizdal and yeah, so more of a, a, a formal web service um, and that kind of broke into um, Rust. So that was, Rust was kind of this uh, thing where it, we, we were using the basic uh, HTTP well, you know, web protocols that we had before uh, for APIs, but in some ways it was, um, it, it was a little bit of a backlash against all the formality and, and you know, the pain and time it took to do uh, more formal web services than rest was like, oh, I, look, I could quickly spin up some web services following protocols and you can do your, uh, your CRUD stuff uh, through APIs and, you know. I'll just, I'll just tell you what, you know, what the endpoints look like and yeah, you can trust my documentation. Yeah. So yeah, so that was uh, and uh, interestingly, and uh, you know, recently that's that's kind of broken uh, too with the the whole uh, group of people that are uh, wanting to do uh, things like GraphQL. Um, so where you can build your query into the uh, into the request that you do, and 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 that determines not only what data you get back, but you know how much and what joins and things that happen. With, with that so it's it's just interesting how things evolve and in some cases there's like a, a attempt to be really super formal about things but then sometimes it's like oh you know I, yeah I, you know i've done sequel for a long time and now there's this whole the whole no sequel movement and um but then either document databases right. or things yeah 
to me, well, to me, the whole NoSQL movement is, and this one goes back to, to my college, my original database um, textbook, the textbook I had on database, only covered SQL in about a quarter of it. The rest of it were things like, you know, what is a document database and what is a network database and, you know, describing other kinds of databases. So to me, I'm reading about this whole no SQL movement and I'm like, this, this, we, we, we were there 30 years ago, 40 years ago. You look at traditional IBM databases and that's what they were. Yeah. Well, you know, and we had to, to go through the whole series thing where, where networking came out, right? Where we had to say, is this a, is this a star network? Is this a ring right. network? Is it a, <laughs> and we just don't worry about We don't worry about network anymore. topologies anymore. Yeah. No you didn't have to physically connect one computer to another computer. Right. You just connect things to the internet. And Well, I, I think also what, what I enjoy about knowing all that stuff, and I'm sure the, the, the people who came before me would say the same thing about the technologies that they worked with. There would be, you know, they would be like, oh, I'm, I'm glad I wrote my own compiler for, for this language because it taught me valuable skills in memory management and data structures and doing all of these other things that you guys you, you youngsters don't understand these days. And I'm like, you know, and I'm glad I did a lot of low level system administration that I had, you know, that I was working with Linux from version 0 0.9, that I was, you know, responsible for writing code that was reading network packets and understanding network packets. I'm glad I understand that because now it helps me understand a whole host of things and be able to explain this is why we need to represent this using 64 bits because 32 bits is just going to, you're not going to have enough memory space. Right. Um, you know, I'm, well, uh, I'm glad I, I have that, that but I also am glad that I don't have to subject somebody else to all of that. <laughs> I don't have, yeah, there's um, the, the fact that I don't have to worry about so much um, and I can focus on the software development part of things. Um, I, I very much like, and the fact that there's lots more libraries and frameworks yeah, um, out there just makes things a lot easier. Um, I had an intern this last summer that was uh, working with us and, and uh, it was fun just to kind of explore what she uh, was, was taught in her. She had one programming experience, I think, uh, before. She did a great job um, with us, but it was fun to, to understand what she had learned and try to fill in some of the blanks. Like, uh, understanding that HTTP is a request response model and, uh, you know, and just kind of explain, you know, when you make a request to a web browser, then you're getting back this document, plus you're getting back links that are pulling other things down like images and stuff, and then trying to relate that to voice programming. Um, just to really understand, you know, this, this round trip that you're getting, it's a simple request response. You get a JSON request in, you get a JSON response back out. And, um, but a lot of that stuff, that background isn't being taught. And I think uh, it's, it's, it's important to understand just the basics of, of how, things, how things go. Well, I, I think it's useful, but I think it's also something that most people in a lot of ways kind of take for granted and kind of you know, assume. You know, at one point I tried to, to explain to somebody, here's what's happening and here's you know, the request and here's the response. And they just gave me this like, yeah, of course. And what, you know, What's your point here? I'm like, oh, you get it. And you get it without having to understand, you know, 
these are in the headers and this is in the body and this is what I have to send back and you get it. You don't need the, the fine details in a lot of ways. Um, and in some ways that's, you know, and again, I'm glad that it's there because it does make development life easier. And I'm also glad that I know those details. Yeah, well, I remember an experience that I had. Um, this was my second job out of college when I was still in Chicago and uh, we were doing some things on, and it was, it was on Windows and so it, you know, Power Builder had a, uh, had a form builder built into it, but there was something that it wasn't quite working. <clears throat> and you could get down to the Windows event level um, on different things. And, and so I asked a coworker and she's like, oh, well, let's, you know, let's try this. And then she gets down to the point where she's sending a message off with a W param and an L param. And I'd, I'd done a little bit of reading with Windows uh, programming. And so I, I, I knew kind of what she was doing, but I'm like, well, how did you know to do that? She goes, oh, it just seemed like it would make sense. And so I tried that and, and, and it worked and it seemed like magic to me. And so I think there is something about understanding the history of things um, so that when you get to a certain point, that you understand really what's going on so that you can solve um, an issue that to somebody else might seem like magic, but it's just because you understand some things that, mm -hmm. that they haven't had to, to understand at that point yet. Now, I don't, think, I don't think we finished our developer history stories yet. I know that for me, uh, you know, I've been, I've been in this job for ages, but I think a big part of where I am now is shaped by the fact that, you know, about, uh, I guess about eight years ago, eight or nine years ago, I got involved in Google Plus. Mm -hmm. And as part of that, you know, started digging under the covers of what was a consumer product, but they had APIs for it. So I started digging into those APIs. And as part of that, that's what led me down the path to be invited to IO and to becoming a Google developer expert. Yep. And because I went to IO that year, I got involved in Glass. And because I got involved in Glass, I got involved in a whole new community of what was, what was interesting for Glass and really exciting for Glass was I got involved in a community of both a bunch of creatives, people who were looking to use Glass in innovative ways, but who were not developers, and a bunch of developers who were interested in exploring what a new form factor was going to look like. Um, and watching these two very different, in some cases, groups work together was really fun and exciting. And that's really what led me, that, I, I trace a direct line from my involvement with Glass and helping the community learn how to develop in Glass and writing a book about Glass and starting out on Stack Overflow and talking about Glass and doing YouTube presentations on Glass and, you know, all of that, that to me was the direct line from, from there to where I am now in mm -hmm. doing this, you know, doing this podcast and uh, helping on SO and writing documentation and helping people understand not just how to develop for voice, but help them see the potential, help those right. creatives say, here's the, Here's, you know, it's weird using the term vision when we're talking about voice, but see yeah. the vision for voice and what new and innovative things we can do with voice. And I think that was, that was really what set me on that path. Yeah, so my, uh, my path on voice started in 2016 when I discovered that Alexa existed. I didn't, 
I hadn't heard anything about it. Um, it'd been out probably about a, you know, a year um, and you could program for it. So I, I, I discovered that you could and I started looking at it and I'm like, well, I've got um, JavaScript programming experience from when I've done you know, my web programming. I've done a little bit of Node, but I didn't understand Node all that much. Um, I didn't have any experience at all with uh, Amazon Web Services or Lambda or serverless or you know, any of the stuff that, um, that I'm doing now. Um, but I just started learning um, and I jumped in and got really excited about it and started uh, sharing things on GitHub. I wanted other people that were following behind me to have a little bit easier time than I did. Mm -hmm. um, and that led to like speaking locally at, uh, at conferences and starting the uh, Phoenix Alexa meetup. Um, which turned into uh, being selected as Alexa's champion that next spring. And that led to a, a job, my first startup experience. Uh, I was a, uh, a co-founder of Voice XP and the technical person behind the scenes doing all the different skills uh, that we were doing with clients or that uh, you know, demos for pre-sales things. Um, so I did that for just over a year. Um, and then... Uh, then I had a, a little lull in the in the voice community. I, I couldn't find anything. Uh, I took a consulting job for um, about eight months, doing uh, uh, doing you know just web programming. And then I found uh, found this other job, um, this other startup at Soar. Been here about a year and a half, but uh, just have really enjoyed um, taking the things that I've learned. So a lot of the samples that you get. Are, show all the intents in one file and your response uh, text-to-speech right there uh, as a string in your code coming back. And I, and I knew from all of my enterprise experience in consulting that projects, you need teams of people to work on bigger projects and you need to be able to structure things in a way that uh, you, know, you encapsulate things and you, mm -hmm. you, you, you move things into services and you unit test. And so all of us, the discipline and stuff that I've learned over the years of doing, you know, my Microsoft uh, development as a consultant or full-time employee just kind of kicked in and thought, okay, we need to step this up uh, and, and, and find ways to apply this to voice. No, I know exactly what you mean. I, you know, I, I still uh, work for, for objective consulting. Um, I still help clients out. And a lot of what we do is helping clients with a uh, web and mobile stuff. And that's most of my day job um, with occasional questions like, so what is this voice thing? Yeah. Just like decades ago, I had, what is this web thing? Um, and beginning to help them get into it. But one of the things I very quickly realized was the same as you is, you know, we're, we're showing examples that are just returning strings. And I'm thinking, you know, Back when I did HTML, yeah, the, the first program we did was we sent back, we wrote programs to send back chunks of HTML. And really quickly we learned that was a bad approach. You know, what, so yeah. I, I started saying, well, what are, you know, since then we have learned about templates and we've learned about other structures and how can we apply those lessons to voice? Yes. And that's where I started going with multivocal is saying, okay, what, what will templates, what, what will the react of voice look like or feel right. like? Mm -hmm. What will the angular of voice feel like? 
and I don't know that that multivocal is it, but I know that multivocal is at least a step closer than what we had, you know, than than the examples the the companies are giving us. Yeah, and exactly, and it was this 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 one this I guess need that I had to solve cross platform mm -hmm. that led me ultimately to Jovo, which led me to you know speech markdown, markdown as, yes. as as you know SSML had different flavors for different platforms. So yeah, trying to solve these problems in, in ways that uh, would be cross-platform. And um, so that's, that's kind of how I've uh, arrived at, at mm -hmm. my current code stack is, is just from, you know, experiences that I've had over the years. Well, I, and I think that's it is that, you know, our, and I think that's why we wanted to do this, have this conversation is that, you know, it's our experiences that over the years that led us to, to shape the exact path that we're on now. And, you know, to say, here's why we think this is maybe not the best approach, but it's heading towards the best approach. Yep. You know, this is, and I'm sure, you know, companies like Jovo and company, you know, the companies like VoiceFlow, their unique experiences were what led them to develop those tools as well. Yes. Because their background said, there's gotta be a better way and maybe this is the better way. Yeah, it's, it's it is interesting just how, how we've gotten um, you know different backgrounds in a lot of ways. Um, you know, your, your yours went through the military and and you know Linux servers and and you develop on a Mac and and I, I develop on yeah. on, on Windows. Um, uh, you know, a little bit of exposure. It's, it's funny. I have a. Um, a sophomore in college um, and he's a math major and you know he built his own you know server and he's always telling me about different things about Linux and I'm just so excited that he gets to explore something that interests him and 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 well, you, know, you know and that's going to shape, help shape where where he goes with mm -hmm. his with his career and I think that's what's really great about our industry in general is that we've got people who are building tools and in some level we're the ones also building those tools to help people do and explore the things that matter to them that they care about that this technology is we're making it as open as possible we're giving people the choice to explore things on their terms rather than on our terms because so, I mean, when, when you and i got started mainframes were still the dominant factor you know, and that was definitely exploring things on someone else's terms. Yep, reel-to-reel uh, um, -reel tape or eight-inch floppies. Right. You know, you know, and it was this notion that we've got now communities. You know, we had communities sort of supporting us then, but now we've got communities for almost any combination of what you want to learn. Mm -hmm. You'll find communities that are out there who are rooting for you, who are out there wanting to help you succeed. And I think both of us in the tools that we build, in the, the answers we provide, in the, you know, it's the nature of, of why you're a champion and why I'm a GDE is that we want to be helping people do right. awesome stuff. Yeah, so I'd um, love to share you know, my experiences with others to, to, just to be as helpful as possible. And, yeah. and, and I, I like learning from other people as well. It's just... Yep. Uh, you know, when, one, one of the things when people ask me, why are you doing this presentation? Why are you telling us all? Why are you giving away these answers? And I'm and and my answer is, you know, I love this technology. I really want to see it succeed. And the only way it's going to succeed is if we have 
a huge number of really awesome things out there and I yep. can't do them all. I can't write every action that I want to write. And then I can't write it as a skill either. We need other people doing awesome stuff, having the awesome ideas, trying the awesome things out and sometimes succeeding, sometimes failing, whatever it always pushes us forward. So, you know, and I think this is, this is one of the things that I want to encourage anyone who's, who's watching and listening to this is if you've got questions, ask them because, you know, we want to help you succeed. If you've got ideas, even if you don't know how to do it, we want to help you figure out how to do it. And there are tons and tons of others who are out there as well who also want to help you do it. Yeah, totally. So uh, we're here to help. We are two voice devs. Two voice um, devs. But, but we would love to have uh, any other devs um, come join us in this adventure. Um, just with what you're doing. So thank you. We'd love to two hear what you're devs. doing. Take care, everyone. Bye bye.